0: My guest today is Knowledge Keeper Alan Sutherland. Alan Sutherland is a facilitator, a storyteller, heritage cultural interpreter, and First Nations engagement officer. He's a spiritual advisor, also the Earth Lodge Keeper at First Nations Treaty 2 Territory, and that's just touching the surface of what he's done. Knowledge Keeper Alan Sutherland, welcome to Humans on Rights.
1: Glad to be here.
0: So, Alan, one of the first things that I would love to get a sense of is what is the difference between an elder, because we always hear about elders, and a knowledge keeper? What's the difference?
1: We live in modern times, and then uh, especially with the onslaught of social media, so you get instant comments on who's an elder. An elder traditionally is one who's been going through life, no matter what their background through life, and they accumulate all that experience. And traditional type elders, and I'll say tradition, because they live the life of a good life, of a good person, and the community recognized that. Even if you had a difficult life, but you found a way to get through that, you become very wise because of that experience. So elders are are lifted up in terms of they get a certain age, and they're highly respected for that knowledge. And the community honors elders. Now, what has happened over time is that you know, in, a, in this history that most Canadians are starting to know about, is that the government have done everything it can to assimilate Indigenous peoples. In the process, have taken away those traditions, those knowledge of those elders that has that knowledge. To transfer from one generation to another was interrupted by Indian residential schools. So, the rejuvenation or the are bringing back of uh, those traditional ways started off very slowly. In 1951, the Indian Act was revised that uh, you can practice this. That one time you couldn't; it was against the law. Really? Yeah, and you couldn't. You couldn't gather. You couldn't even go and harvest medicine. It was, it was a law. Now in 1951, they revised it to allow freedoms because of the pressure of Canadians that fought with Indigenous veterans in the great wars. That Essentially awakened Canadians that if they were good enough to fight for us, how come we're, we have to send them back to reserves and, and to be locked up under that Indian Act system? So there was this pressure to, to get rid of the Indian Act. That's another story, but the government did, have not have a, did not want to get rid of it, which gets into uh, the, the history that I talk to, to a lot of groups. So they revised it to accommodate Canada as one of the founding fathers of the United Nations and human rights. But in their backyard, they're violating human rights. Right. right. Especially uh, genocide as, as it was drawn up with the Geneva Code, genocide. Because the Indian Residential School was existing all the way even up to 1996. When you forcibly take children away from one race and to be handed over to another race was one of the lines of genocide. So anyway, there was tremendous political pressure to to get rid of the Indian Act, but they didn't. They revised it to to give some freedoms. Now, getting back to that question of yours, uh, it was slow in coming because if you had many generations of taking children to be disrupted in their culture and their worldview. And then along the way, it was illegal to practice medicine. So after a while, most communities have lost this, this way of life. It slowly comes back in the, uh, when you have nations gather like powwows, a gathering of nations. It started slow in the 60s, as I remember. And then it started uh, developing more in the 70s. But what was critical in the 70s was uh, a lot of these traditional ceremonies went underground. It had to, to protect it. And doing so, they were very strict on who can get access to those uh, teachings. And they were very strict on that. Those elders at the time got together. The traditional ones, the ceremonial ones, our elders in general got together in Winnipeg. And they were concerned that our uh, the young people have lost their language. There's no way to draw them into the lodge again. Open up the lodge again, where so they can be drawn in to learn these ways of life. So they they agreed not to be so strict, but they also reminded each other that everybody on Earth is part of the Creator's garden, and it was never meant to be a, a secret society. Is this that colonization? And religion, like the Jesuits, have forced the people to go underground to protect it. Now it's time to share. Mm -hmm. So it started slowly. Slowly, we got elders teaching these traditions and and gave these teachings. And one of my mentors, and and he's still my mentor, he's still around, is Jules LaVallee. Now, he taught me a lot of things when I first came to Winnipeg. And I have had many other teachers since then. So he would be called an elder. And those that teach these things were called elders. Okay. But what happened, though, is that as young people start learning these, these teachings, they weren't teach properly of the protocol, you know, the ethics. Uh, and Essentially, if they don't have a teacher or a mentor, they're essentially going on their own. They're going on their own. And, and it, it was very prominent that there was a lot of these ones that are describing themselves as elders have came out of, the uh, Rockwood, Stony Mountain, because they spent a few years getting involved with, with the teachings of those elders, went through the ceremonies like sweat lodge, and, and they might have even picked up a pipe, but they're not formally, they still had to do a lot of healing for themselves. Mm-hmm. So they weren't properly instructed. So the term came from, oh, not too long ago. It was about 15 years ago, maybe about 20, that they were calling them popcorn elders. Popcorn? Popcorn.
0: Popcorn elders.
1: Because it just popped up. Right, right, right. (laughs) So after a while, there are those that are legitimate and those that are introduced themselves as elders. It was getting confusing. So a few years back, People say, well, everybody's going to be an elder. That's a given. And when it comes to those healing councils, that's what we call those elders. They're part of a healing council, is that they're endorsed by other elders from the community. And they essentially say, you're an elder now. So you can't argue, even if you feel that you're so young. You cannot.
0: (laughs) Okay. It's, It's such an honor.
1: It's an honor. Yeah. And that's how it usually works. Then there's going to be a uh, elders that are going to still struggle with life. They're addicted to something, or are mm-hmm. they? Are they end up occasionally hurting people or hurting themselves? Yeah, they're not good, good role models.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So even I came up with a, a way of describing it is: uh, we're all going to be seniors, right? And those are seniors with right. problems,
0: right? Sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so just to help with the idea of what is an elder. So an uh, like again, an elder goes through life, experiencing life, the hardships of life, but but as a result, have, have achieved wisdom. Okay. And a knowledge and keeper? And a, knowledge, and a knowledge, keeper? knowledge keeper is is a term that's been used now, especially for those that are young. I have been called a knowledge keeper because I haven't achieved as an elder. I haven't, I haven't been told I was an elder until recently in the last few years. I was the easiest term to, to say, those that have traditional teachings are the gifts, or those that practice healing, those that walk the talk, they mm-hmm. live the life. They are role models and they are supported by the community. So they would say you're, you're a knowledge keeper, the keeper of the gifts. Right. So this way um, you can develop yourself to grow to be that knowledge keeper. Right. So that's why these days it's more important to acknowledge the traditional knowledge keepers than just say a blanket term of elder. Right. A traditional knowledge keeper is mentored. Okay. But you can also go through the path of, of picking up your culture again by going through all the ceremonies. And if you've gone to a Sundance, you commit yourself to that very sacred ceremony of four years. And I'll just quickly describe what that is. Is that you gave tobacco a commitment that you want to be a Sundancer for whatever reason. It's mostly for healing of oneself. Yeah. Healing your community, your family and community, and healing the world. Okay. So it's it's four days and four nights without any uh, water or any food. And you dance from when the sun is coming up to the sun goes down. You're focusing on a tree of life. So you're committing yourself in prayer. Okay. And Alan,
0: let me ask you, is that something that is available to both men and women,
1: they both go together.
0: Both can do a Sundance together.
1: Yeah, okay. and and, it, and because um, like I said before, in Creator's Garden, it was never meant to be a closed off society, even in ceremonies. Right. So we have all peoples that have joined, even uh, other religions have joined in a Sundance. and it's not just for a, a bucket list to check off. Right. If you're committed. To your spiritual development and to learn more about that, this is the highest form of the ceremony. So when you go to your four years, then you can pick up a pipe, you can you can do other ceremonies like a sweat lodge, and you might even find your your gifts that you can have for like to help others. Mm-hmm. So so that that's another way of saying, okay, I'm I'm getting to on that path as a traditional Knowledge keeper. Right. Right. And we so, call it the Red
0: Road. We call it sorry, what's that? You call it
1: We call this way of life the Red Road the of red living road. the life of the Nishnabi, the life of your ancestors. Yeah. But yeah. it's it's the road that is long and narrow. Mm-hmm. And along the way is that there's temptations and there's life distractions. Mm-hmm. There's also blessings. But to, to truly be on that long and narrow road of the red road yeah. is to know who you are and to know where you're going. Right. And, and, it, and it's neutral. It's neutral in a fact that that's what a healer is. They don't prejudge. They don't judge. They don't say, oh, you should have been doing this. <laughs> None of that. It's basically when you, do, when you go on this road, you're committed to not only to your development, your spiritual development, your healing development, but the purpose is to help others.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you have to be neutral.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So that's the, long, that's the red road.
0: Yeah, the red road. So, Alan, when you have now, you're a knowledge keeper, and as you said, somebody has indicated to you that you, you are an elder, but we're talking about you as a knowledge keeper for, for a moment. What, what are some of the challenges that you've had on your journey to become a knowledge
1: keeper? Well, creator uh, knew my purpose in this life. And he says, go ahead and experience life. Like we all experience life. We all had our good times, right? Or we develop a a career, right? But then uh, the creator says, well, you know, fine. That's good and dandy. But uh, remember why you came here? (laughs) There's a purpose for you, right? Right, right. So there was that tugging, that spiritual tugging and saying, um, this is what you have to do. Because where I came in from in my community, we didn't have those traditions. We grew up very Christian. In my okay. case, okay. Roman Catholic faith. And I was very good in terms of biblical history or world history because of it. That was very helpful to understand how people think in this world. and Why do they think the way they do? What is spiritual beliefs? Anyway, that's part of the journey. I came from that kind of background, but as along the way, I met uh, with elders that's the time we call them elders, right and they gave teachings, teachings what life is, by like using tools like the medicine wheel,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, talking about how to grow personally, how to be grown physically, emotionally, all the four quadrants, spiritually and such. So it was a journey. But eventually, I got more and more into it. And because of that, I was able to pick up a, a pipe. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't going to use it yet because I was overwhelmed. I said, what do I do with this pipe?
0: Right, right.
1: But it was an honor to, to receive one. Yeah. So it was a beginning of what we call a sacred bundle. Mm-hmm. These gifts that you receive are just essentially, they're just tools. They're not idols to be worshipped. They have important meanings to it. And they're just tools. Mm-hmm. But over time, I was creating my own bundle. Now, I was a, and I was observing others how they're using the pipe, how they were using their bundle. What are the songs that they're singing? What are the teachings? So I was just more of an observer than anything else. That's part of my, my gifts is I'm a, I'm always observing, always learning. And I have this intuition on how this all fits in. So that was always been my gift, but it took uh, it took an elder to draw me out, and I'll share this because this is one I honor, Jules of Valley about and how he drew this out from me, sitting in a circle and learning from an elder, their life experience or their teachings. So I'm sitting with uh, Jules of Valley and I'm like right next to him, and uh, he was about to go and talk about the seven beautiful values. The seven sacred teachings. In my case, it's called the grandfather. Anyway, he was gonna start going into it, and he looked at me. He looked aside at me. And said, he says, "He says, Alan, do you know the seven sacred teachings?" And I looked at him. See, a lot of things was going on in my head. First of all, I didn't plan on talking to anybody. Right. I was comfortable just to listen. Right. And that's the way way I like it. But immediately I knew what he was going to do. He's asking me if I knew the seven sacred teachings. In my head, I was imploding. Like, oh my gosh, do I lie to an elder (laughs) to get out of this? Right. And that's what was going on. Because I knew I knew. I knew the teachings. So I responded, "Uh, yes, I do. Hoping that was it. Yes. And he said, good, now you teach them. Got it, yeah. Ah, now, now there's a second wave. I'm exploding inside. I'm stressed out. Mm-hmm. I says, well, you're not thinking so much. You're just thinking, I can't remember the teachings exactly. anymore. Exactly,
2: exactly, yeah.
1: <laughs> so I remember, well, let's start with one and see where it goes. Yeah. The first one was my um, gun the wolf teach the grandfather of wolf. And that one teaches humility. So I talked about humility. I talked about the importance that nobody is greater than or less than, that we're here on our journey. And uh, I still think back, why was it the wolf? Because later on, the same elder Jules of Valley brought me out of the, from the world into the wolf pack, into the ceremonies, into this group, the Red Road Walkers. And I was a lone wolf. That was my survivor skill, mm-hmm. and he brought a, a lone wolf from the wilderness to the wolf pack. So it only makes sense later on that the wolf is the good place to start for sure. And I and I've been teaching ever since. Yeah, yeah, and, and he's still part of my life. He along with with his wife Margaret Lavalle, we work together because she's a uh, we work on Indian residential school survivors. So, for me, it's a personal journey. Now, I'm in a position where I'm sought after for people that want to hear all this. And I'm free to teach it because I believe in empowering a human being. Mm -hmm. And empowering all of us. Because our teaching is is essentially a, a call of action today. There's prophecies that talk about this age of lighting the eight fire. And it talks about all the experience that we'll have throughout the ages, which came true. Even Crazy Horse has said, uh, before he died, this uh, warrior in the United States that fought against the U.S. armies. Before he died, he had a vision of all the people dancing under the tree of life. And he had seen that there were many races, all colors of the rainbow. And, and they were all praying, hmm. dancing for the same thing. And that is to save the planet. Right. No, right. I'm paraphrasing here. I'm not. I'm yeah. not exactly no, I appreciate that. But it's that that's how I, I recognize the true knowledge keepers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When they're a little bit strict and says, you can't do it that way. Or he says, why are you teaching them these things? It's supposed to be secret. It's supposed to be ours. Well, they're on their journey. Right, they have not achieved the overall what it means to be a human being. Mm-hmm. Right, and right now there's a tremendous need to create—not create, but to have. The term that's used today for healers is light workers. The Hopi prophecy essentially says there's 144,000 light workers that are here to save the planet. And one of my spiritual uh, friends had told me I'm one of them. Well. Wow. Wow. So how, how can I get the numbers up? For sure. For sure. So, so, so I, I start teaching it.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Alan, let me talk a bit about that because one of the things on your website, whitespottedhorse.com, when you go to that website, there's a big headline there that says understanding Canada's indigenous peoples. And that's what I would love to explore a little bit with you in this next segment is where do you start with that conversation?
1: Well, we have to start by... uh, When I teach it, I start from the beginning of origin story. All peoples of the world, including all... We commonly call this continent Turtle Island before Europeans showed up because it's related to our traditional teachings. But the origin story is that we all came from original human beings. And then over time, they became many languages, many nations, and they filled out all the creator's garden, which is the world. So it's always good to start from there because there is a commonness to it, to the story, and it's all about reaching out and finding common ground. Because if you went through a story, and if no matter sometimes people are very up here in the head, they're they're gonna judge or says, Okay, let's see what this goes, or they're just saying, I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> whatever reason. To reach out to people's hearts, and that's where your spirit is dominantly is, is to bring them from their head to their heart. And the best way to do it is find common ground, but to break this uh whatever this is in between is to tell a story. So, I tell a story about what we see around us. And I usually tell the story of that uh, indigenous people, because their worldview is this. When they see the sun, they see grandfather sun. When they see the moon, they see grandmother moon. When they look to the sky, they say father sky. They look to the ground and uh, all the life around us, our mother, Mother Earth. All of life is our brothers and sisters. And we're all connected by the same spirit that we can call energy. That's creation. So people are saying, oh, this is interesting. I'd like to hear more. (laughs) Because I'm tapping into your spirit that already knows this.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Is this the human experience, the human program? We we start off by not knowing anything. There's this blanket that covers us before we we come and walk in this life. You don't take all that experience of the cosmos with you when you start experiencing life. So there's a veil. I know one person teach me there was a, there's an angel that presses on top of your upper lip there, that little indent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you start from scratch. Right. So now you're born into a family. You're born into a community. You're born into this world. And you're influenced in this world. And the three things that makes you in this life that'll shape you, how you think, how you see the world, what is your worldview is essentially, uh, your belief systems. Who is giving that to you? What are they giving to you? Unfortunately, if it's not always a good thing in terms of judging our neighbors or, you know, how racism form because of a uh, lack of knowledge or ignorance is because they transfer that. It says, oh, those people are that way. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a program for a little baby, for a little child as they grow. So it's, it's also your belief system. That's the human program. It's also your ego, your ego in terms of your emotional response, being annoyed, anger, you know, joy, sorrow, and grief, all that. And how sometimes if you don't keep ego in check, it dominates your thinking. In other words, if you've got a big head, you think you're the best and greatest in the world. Right. See how far that goes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because it won't create harmony with others. Right. In your mind, you might be the greatest. Mm-hmm. But in the long run, he says, why doesn't anybody talk to me? <laughs> right. Yeah. But the last one, which as a healer, such as myself, deals with all the time, is fear. Now, Especially fear is introduced when you're a child and nobody's there to explain anything to you why. And a lot of traumatic events, a loss of innocence. And nobody's there to explain you about things. Like recently I helped a, a fella had to deal with death because he didn't know why he, a body was being lowered into a ground mm-hmm. when, they, when they seen that person like days ago.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so they carry that fear and then they get older it manifests into an illness because it's unresolved. It's internalized to internal chaos. So it's part of the healing is to release that energy, but not to lose the lesson. This time you're not triggered anymore. You let it go. But remember, life is about learning the lessons of life. So that's part of growing. Mm-hmm. So fear is very common, how it motivates one's life. So if those are the three main thrusters on how you think in this world, it is no wonder that 75% of the population, or even higher, are always thinking negatively, because they think bad about themselves.
2: Mm -hmm. They
1: think bad about their, or they don't like the way they look, or they don't like their... They don't make enough money or they're not educated. It's always an ongoing record that plays out every day. And there are people walking around with that. But the freedom is to say, I don't want to be burdened with that anymore. I want to think positive all the time. So even as a healing for myself, which is always going to be ongoing Mm -hmm. as a lifelong learner, but as a healer, I'm always healing myself. There's gonna be days where you forgot those things. Going through COVID the, f- the first time, I forgot all my strength, yeah. all my teachings. I was just like anybody else. I went and I fell into mild depression. I then I recognized later on, like I took a good break from my work last December, and I was just cleaning up some things, and I looked at them, my old notes and says, I forgot about all this, all these teachings. So, I started uh, organizing them. I was motivated. Now, recently, I do health walks where I says, you want to walk with me for about an hour? Because people through this current COVID period are not talking to each other, socializing with each other. Right. I got my, sec- my second vaccine uh, a month ago. Mm-hmm. I'm good to go, but we walk outdoors. Right. And basically, giving people a chance to reconnect with another human being again. Mm -hmm. It not only brings them healing, it brings me healing. Right. And we are social people. We are feeling people. That's what it is to be a human being. To experience life.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: To experience all those emotions. But the whole world has gone through a crisis. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why depression, anxiety, and mental health is very... It's all around us. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I I don't know if I answered your question or what was the second question.
0: Well, I just wanted to talk about this notion about, you know, the understanding Canada's Indigenous peoples and how you have that conversation and how you start. And we've gone through, you know, the whole issue around the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the report that the commission did headed up by a former senator. He wasn't a senator at the time, Murray Sinclair. And, you know, that document seemed to have landed in Canada and to some extent, there's always the sense I think Alan, when these reports land somewhere that they don't know what is the next step is it does it go you know does it have a lifeline of a couple of weeks and then the next issue comes forward, and so where does this truth and reconciliation commission and the healing that should come from that where where does it go and so when I look at your sort of your spiritual journey and you talk about understanding Canada's Indigenous peoples. You know, that to me is something that I think we need to spend time as a nation talking about because and listening. And that's why I think I was so intrigued when I heard you, we shared an event together during Anti-Racism Week. And when I heard you speak, I thought, it was so thoughtful and so graceful in its approach that it had a tendency to draw, draw me in as opposed to push me away. So I, I think that that's something that, that you, you have a great talent. I don't know if talent's the right word, but you have a a spirit about you. And so I think that's the kind of conversation I love having with you.
1: Well, I appreciate uh, those comments, uh, Stuart. That's, Essentially, that is my purpose. uh, When I look back at all these things, I grew up as a historian of oral traditions of my people. History that I got wasn't from books; it wasn't going through like a university, which I went for about one year. It came from my people, being raised by my grandparents, and they were avid uh, visitors. They visit everybody, Mm -hmm. many communities. And as a little, as a child growing up, I'm always with them, so I heard all the stories. So that it became part of me. I never knew that later on that I'm going to be able to teach all this. I also was like, I guess I was a, like a Forrest Gump in a lot of ways. You know how he, he was throughout that movie. He was in key historical times. Right. right. I was kind of like that guy. <laughs> yeah. I was kind of like that guy by, because of uh, I had people who, who were chiefs, who were elders that seen something in me and they, and they wanted to bring me along. Mm-hmm. They wanted to teach me. So I've always been mentored that way. I've mm-hmm. always, been, always been mentored by chiefs and I was taken along to all when chiefs gathered and talk about their issues with, about trying to fight back and get their rights back. And I was there. Yeah. Uh, I was there at major events. Like this is where Truth and Reconciliation really started. with was the time of Oka. But that summer... Right. 96, I think it was 96, I'm not sure, I forgot. No, 1990. That summer was called Indian Summer. Because it wasn't just that. That was the end of that summer. What was happening is because of Beach uh, Lake, it was Elijah Harper that said no. What is he saying no to? Well, ever since our constitution was created, they said that we're going to draw in, we're going to bring in. Indigenous people. The only thing they did there was Section Thirty Five is to recognize the three indigenous groups: right, Indian, that's Inuit and the Métis. Right, and also did by introducing the mat into the doorway by saying we recognize Aboriginal and Treaty rights as part of our laws. Now the goal was to go and say how would this, how would they fit into the federal system because they were they were out. In fact, I think, I, and I still believe this, we as indigenous people are still out. That's unfinished business. The door is still there. It's just that government is trying to figure out how do we go through the door. So that's another story I could mm-hmm. tell you about. First yeah. Nations the yeah. territory. It says, we're not waiting for you guys.
2: Yeah,
1: We're, we're going to do it. But anyway, there was these secession meetings to work with the chief and the government at the time, being Christian and all the premiers, they never took it seriously. Mm-hmm. They, just, they just ran out the clock. We owe you three meetings, or was it four? I'm not sure. We're running out the clock. They weren't committed. So it becomes a constitutional crisis because that's, it hasn't been achieved yet. At the same time, what was going on with Quebec was they were going to negotiate to bring Quebec into the constitution as well. Because they said we have inherent rights. So not only First Nations saying we have inherited rights, Quebec is saying we have inherent rights. But how does this fit into our new constitution, 1982? There, there was the Beach Lake Accord to try to bring in Quebec, but they didn't want to do anything with the First Nations. So you know, say, oh, good, No, Quebec is, is going to agree to these terms. But they, they failed to bring in the First Nations. There was no plan to, to meet with them. So they had to get it ratified. And by the time it came to Manitoba, through legislation that it has to be a consensus, one, Elijah Harper says, no, I'm not supporting this. And they stalled it. It will not pass at all in this country. I was there. I was a young man, a police officer at the time. I was his bodyguard. Right. (laughs) But I was involved with all the discussions with with Phil Fontaine and Assembly Manitoba Chiefs and Elijah Harper and the death threats that were going to everybody. That's why we brought it. I was a police officer and I was a bodyguard. But I seen it firsthand. Mm -hmm. But what created was a solidarity in this country. And it happened in 1969. It happened again before the Constitution. And it hap- it's happening again in terms of Indigenous people are blockading everything. Right. They blockade the roads, the, the railroads, the hydro lines, tampering, all that stuff. But they essentially shut down the country for about a day or two. Now imagine if the whole country was shut down and then nothing was moving in terms of transportation mean. it costs a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing that government will pay attention to is that if this affects my pocketbooks, you got my attention. <laughs> it sparked uh, activism saying if we cannot negotiate, then we're gonna have to do something else to get the attention of Canadians because this is Canadians' problem. It's not the government doing doing this. It's Canadians that don't know. Right, And Canadians need to know. So that summer, which happened later on with the Oko crisis, over a golf course that they didn't want to develop over those uh, sacred the burial sites. So the crisis took place. But from crisis comes opportunity, saying, what, ha- what happened here? Canadians were starting to have wake up to the consciousness of indigenous people where before they were, they were out of sight, out of mind, and forgotten. Now they have no choice but to look at this. So there was a Royal Commission on Aboriginal People's Report that was released in 1996. The problem there with 440 recommendations was, and that's what it was, a recommendations. Mm-hmm. So it ended up being ignored and put on the shelves. Maybe a few things happened. But closer to home, You had the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry because uh, it was systemic racism with the police force and and other agencies. So at least that brought into some uh, self-governing initiatives, but it's still ignored as far as I'm concerned. But all this plays a part in educating the general public society because uh, if there's no peace in this country, there's no peace at all. Right. And it's just a matter of time that something will spark it. Now, what's going on across in in South Africa is where truth and reconciliation came from. Mm -hmm. They're dealing with the same system that was introduced them by the British called the Indian Act. Apartheid. Mm -hmm. Because it went around the world colonization. And now you got Nelson Mandela who's been jailed. For 27 years in a small cell, he was fighting back for his people's rights, and they used colonial laws to suppress oppress people. So he got arrested. Now, now there was this pressure around the world against apartheid, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, against this corporation that supports this, him in the pocketbooks, as they will. I remember that as a forest dump. <laughs> <laughs> So that's why I, I look at history as a personal, because I remember these things quite yeah.
2: uh,
1: uh, clearly. So now the pressure was he was released. Does he come back as a bitter man? Does he come back and say, I want revenge? Does he come back and say, oh, now I'm going to really organize uh, and create a revolt? Oh, he had time to think about what life is really about. So he came out talking about healing. In the process, the people, the whole world pressure was, you have to give him that right to election. So he was riding that wave. He's talking about healing. He's talking about reconciliation. And he became the first president in this process. So he said, we all need to heal as a society. We all need to work together. But we can't get there. Without knowing what to place first. Mm-hmm. So the knowing of, of that history and the knowing of what the role that everybody played government, police force, uh, religion, laws has to be taught and learned. But we need the stories of those that were a part of it. Now, they, they weren't going to get in trouble. They are going to be pardoned. they're there to get the, the truth. Tell the truth why you did that. Was it that way because you were born as a, um, in a better uh, way of life? where you are born in that class system where and then you didn't care for the greater population? They really want to know the human element of, of how a person could enforce violent laws or become violent. So, so we can really understand the, the nature of a human being. But it was about learning. And the key thing about that learning, that reconciliation, that reconciliation part is healing, no retribution. Mm -hmm. So it's the same process that I do as I work with a person, a human being, is that I I go and then release the negative energy in a safe way. But you, you keep the learning. And then you, it's about the empowerment of the here and now. And in that particular case, they says that we're all going to be a nation. Healing won't happen overnight. But that's going to be the priority. And, and they still struggle. Yeah. It, a, it yeah. then became perfect. But the thing is, they know that this will take a long time.
0: Yeah. Alan, let me, let me ask you a question about seven generations. Yeah. Because I know that there's comments that, that I've heard from from others, some elders, who have indicated that the situation we find ourselves here with Indigenous peoples in Canada has taken us seven generations to get here. And they talk about the healing process taking another seven generations. Can you explain what does that look like? I You know, just as you and I are talking, if I thought seven generations... You know, they always say that a, a good mother provides seven generations of a great family. And so you if you take it on the other side of seven generations, I think that if that's the issue, some people would say, well, what can I do? I'm one generation. How is it going to happen another six? Explain your view of what that seven generations looks like.
1: For me, there there is a different way of teaching it. The most common is essentially every decision you make is for the seven of seven generations where you stand into the future. What you borrow is from the past, is your ancestors. You maintain everything for once in seven generations from now. That's what's most commonly taught. One moment, I'm just going to talk about historically, what was the seven generations uh, for us today is a time of that treaty making. When, when we both entered into treaties, our ancestors taught lo- long about this. They had ceremonies, they had shaken tents and so forth. Do we make this treaty? Do we enter this treaty with these newcomers? See, they could have said no. But because of the values that nobody owns the land is meant to share, but they do recognize things were, were happening around them, like the United States with the Indian wars, more and more people coming to the East from Hampton Bay, but from the East or from the South, from the United States, they knew things were were changing. So they, they could take the path, and that's what everybody was afraid of, is the Indian Wars. Now, the United States, they just went through the civil rights, the, their, their civil war. So they had like a million soldiers, so they had to go west. They couldn't stay home and be a farmer because their, their economy was ruined. So go west, young men, go west. So to them was manifest destiny. They're just gonna are gonna fight it and just take it. You know in Canada, the previous seven generations with Canada was the golden years of getting to know each other. That was the fur trade, that was making treaties, that was living together. But as the the expansion was going westward, the critical year was 1871, 150 years ago. Was do we share this? lands with the newcomer so they had to think about the seven generations. as they probably knew because uh, we're visionaries we have ceremonies that can go into the future and see how things are going to go they said this is the what's going to maintain our identity as the original peoples as the original nation so if you were to look back from now to 1871 and see the 150 years it was it wasn't easy it was terrible, but we we survived. We're resilient because of it. Now we're at a point here. Of what are we going to do for the next seven generations? We're not alone anymore. We're surrounded by all our relatives. We are uh, Canada is a diverse country with many many peoples. But what are we going to do for the next seven generations? That's how people think about seven generations. What are we going to do for those children's children's and children's to come? And, and that's commonly taught like that. But the Anishinaabe teaches your influence, the power of now. It's always about the power of now. The past is what you learn. You got to know the past in order to know where you're going. And the future needs to be created. So this is how I've been teaching it all along was because I remember, at least my great-grandmother, I remember her. I don't recall my great-grandfather, but my influence of them, my great-grandparents, is an influence of who I am today. Of course, I know my grandparents. I love my grandparents. In fact, uh, one of the the grandparents have raised me Mm -hmm. at a time in their generations that they weren't able to raise their own children. Now they get the chance to raise me. Then I'm influenced by my parents which I, uh, the majority of my life, I was never part of them. I went to my grandparents. Mm-hmm. So the, these are, are the building blocks of who I am. So there, it's also scientific. This is the, the, the code, the gene, the gene code you get, the DNA. Right. But the power is this moment. So you got one, two, three, four, me. Now I'm responsible. They, they did everything they can for me. Good and bad. But they, they made, me, made me who I am today. Now, I'm responsible to say, you know, they had it tough. I inherited their pain. I, I need healing. I need to address it. So I can be effective as a parent, as a grandparent. And I'm, we're going to work so hard to be in the lives of my great-grandchildren. Because uh, we were told that we lived a very healthy life. And that was uh, that was the norm, mm-hmm. in spite of uh, the illnesses that are plagued our people today. But I made a commitment that I'm going to be giving them a good life. Mm-hmm. In our value systems, the overall what life is about is Menobesian, living the good life. I'm responsible for the generations to come to ensure that they have a good life. I'm responsible to ensure that. You know what? I used to drink water directly from Lake Water from the boat. It was refreshing. But it was, it was a, uh, not long later, 96, they have this health warning. Can't do that. You got a bowl of water. So something changed. Now I'm not going to threat over it, but I'm going to do what I can. I can't save the older world, but I definitely have the power of now and influence. So I'm going to do everything I can to give them the natural beauty my great-grandchildren could inherit. So there's a lot of work to be done. Mm-hmm. That's why the work that we do in committing to save this planet and to empower people to wake them up and saying, we're in a crisis. So anyway, that's another story, but that's the seventh generational yeah. uh, influence of a teaching that I teach.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and so here's a, um, I want you to to do a, a teaching for me. And I'm going to tell you that uh, at the beginning of all my podcasts, I read, and I'm going to read what I, I pre-record, and I want you to reflect with me on the accuracy or if there's something I'm missing or something I should change. So I start out like this. I would like to begin by acknowledging that I am in Treaty 1 territory the land of where I'm sitting is the traditional territory of the Nishinaabe, Cree, Oji-Cree, Dakota, and Denny peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Now, is that accurate? Is that appropriate?
1: Well, if you were to, to not have borders, like a treaty border, like a uh-huh. treaty one, and, there, and there's five treaties in Manitoba, which Manitoba is a, a border, uh-huh. then that statement is fine. <laughs> okay it's not accurate okay I said traditional territory the Inuit people who, who always gets excluded out of Manitoba they're part of Manitoba yeah it is never mentioned right and they're, they're part of Churchill they're part of a Three Lake. they're up there but traditional territory you won't see the Inuit saying this is my traditional territory same thing goes with the Dene who's way up north mm-hmm they Have their own territory, but they won't say this is my territory here in Treaty One. Same thing with uh Oji Creek, mm-hmm. it's more, more northeast from here, so they won't call this their territory. But who would call this their territory? Their traditional way that they live off the land are going to be it's going to be the Cree, it's going to be Dakota, it's going to be the Ojibwe, and it's going to be. Uh, the Métis. So all these groups were living off the land in this territory before the, making, the entering of Treaty 1. So once a treaty was made, it's just like freeze-frame. Everybody stop. This is who are the nations within Treaty 1 territory. Now, what happened over time, we got now Treaty 2 was very shortly was made, and and they'll have more, like, a different people to acknowledge. A treaty 3, more in Ontario. They'll have whoever is in that territory. Then you got Treaty 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 to 11. So that makes the heart or the bulk of Canada. So when people acknowledge, when they started acknowledging um, to do this, I actually think it, it was it was here in Winnipeg that started that process. And I actually think it was the University of Manitoba that started this process before the Treaty Relations Commission of Manitoba. It's been around for 15 years. Reason why I say that because they got it wrong.
2: <laughs> right, right.
1: <laughs> so if you're the first and he says, this is how it's done, then everybody yeah. copies that one. Yeah. Right? And then when the Treaty Relations Commission comes along, which I'm part of, he says, well, that's not accurate. But uh, it's been done, it's out there, it's been spreading around. Right. Throughout Canada, it's it's now wherever you are, it's being said. Uh, Who are the original people and what are their territories? So if you're far out east, it'll be the Algonquin people, right? Wherever you are. And there's treaties. That's part of your history. So land acknowledgement is to honor the original peoples that were here because it was through their generosity of sharing that built this country. Mm -hmm. That created even the provinces that which came later. Yeah. So the best way to for reconciliation is to say, as Canadians, this is our history. And we're forever grateful for the generosity of the original nations. And that's a great thing.
0: Yeah, that is a great thing. I can't tell you, Knowledge Keeper Alan Sutherland, what an honor it is to sit and listen and learn from you. The great part about what I'm doing here is that I know that we can do this again, and, and I look forward to it. I thank you for sharing your, your red road, your journey, and I thank you for the teachings, and I thank you for spending some time with me today on podcast. It was, uh, it was an honor, and I thank you.
1: Well, I thank you for inviting me. Very important that we all get to know each other. That's the way the Creator wanted. We wanted diversity. But he didn't want anybody to judge each other. But to reach out to each other and appreciate each other because we all have a lot to share with each other. So anyway, miigwech. And we usually do a saying after we do our ceremonies. is a reminder of what we are on this life journey is that we're all relatives. Akana the way magana. All my relations.
0: Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie May Bituin. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. A production of The Sound Off Media Company. I'm Matt Kundle, host of The Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast.